This is Game Theory, a podcast where my brother Chris and I discuss strategy, competition, and decision-making. In this episode, we explore why gig economy apps like DoorDash and Uber have such high prices. For nearly 100 years, America's backbone was mined, forged, and hammered in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. The men and women of Bethlehem Steel built ships that won world wars, created the Manhattan skyline, and built a golden gate in California. But due to poor management and union gluttony, Bethlehem Steel collapsed. Now the bones of the mill are an arts district, music venue, and casino. In 2016, over drinks inside the tomb of the steel manufacturing giant, two DoorDash drivers decided they'd agree to decline delivery opportunities until they got a price they wanted. You see, when drivers decline a specific delivery, the DoorDash, Uber, or whatever other gig economy apps increase the fee offered for that job. If drivers decline certain jobs enough, the baseline fee gets higher and higher. The men agreed. They'd set a baseline for minimum fee deliveries until they'd accept a job. Their idea sparked a movement called Decline Now. Today, Decline Now encourages more than 10,000 drivers and gig economy workers nationwide to decline first, second, and third until the fee goes up. But that only works if every driver is on the same page. Otherwise, a driver could swoop in and accept the lower fees for themselves. This begs the question, first, when do you break the mold and act in self-interest? And second, what will happen when the apps figure it out? And welcome to episode 12 of Game Theory, our show about strategy, decision-making, and competition. Chris, your hat is becoming a theme. It's becoming a theme. It's because I have no fashion sense, and I love the Jackson Moose. Jackson Moose. It's one of those things that seems touristy, but is authentic, and they're fighting words. That's right. I've been watching Jackson Moose games since we were, I don't know how high, shorter than we are now. Not very big, but I know that in Jackson, there's two kinds of Jackson Hole, Wyoming, right? One is the resort version of Jackson, which is where you go skiing, and that's not in Jackson except for one place. And then there's like the town version of Jackson, which is like a mega, mega, mega 1% of 1% of 1% college town, essentially. It's like the kids of the billionaires go there and they get drunk. And I remember thinking it might be really fun to do that, but in the winter, you just kind of walk around this stuff. And it reminded me of my own college days, Chris, and I realized that the kids these days when they're drunk in the cool district downtown, they can whip out their phones and someone comes and picks them up for $7. It's incredible. I don't know how society functioned before things like Uber. Like, what are you going to do? Hail a cab? What if you're on a street where there's no cabs driving by? What if you got to go farther than the cab's expected range? What if you want to get food delivered to your door? You think a cab is going to run through the McDonald's drive through and bring it to your home after you're passed out drunk? No, they're not going to do that. And I don't understand how people made it before now. I lived two miles away from the square in Oxford, Mississippi, and I went to a town or to a college where the social life is more important than the education. Social life is the education. One might say some mine is elite. No question about it. But, as you've been there, but it's too far away. Now, Uber, like, there'd be so much fun, and it's so cheap. However, for those of us that are using Uber during the pandemic, everybody's attitude was, let's all stay in this together. We're all in this together. And then that attitude and various political... Well, for, like, three days... Three days, yeah. Like it was, there was a six week period in there that was golden. So we all remember Tiger King and Outer Banks, and ooh, there was. We, little... we had justifiable excuses for everything. Like I haven't done my laundry in two weeks. Ah, COVID's got me. COVID, COVID's. You're not paying your bills. Like ah, COVID though, probably. You're like, oh no, I get that. It was, it was awesome. It kind of like culminated with the NFL draft. It was sweet. But then, recently, we found out that in conjunction with some other stuff that's going on that we'll get into, 
All of a sudden, Uber prices and Lyft prices and other gig prices like DoorDash, Grubhub, Airbnb, the prices are going through the roof. And everyone's like, what the hell is going on, Chris? Well, we're, we're going to explain what the hell is going on. So the first thing we're going to start with is what the gig economy is. So a gig economy, which is what the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg or whatever will call it, all it means is like a person will do a handy job that requires minimal-ish skill, but requires a little bit of know-how, and they'll do it for a couple bucks. And isn't that just freelance work? work? Basically, yep. Isn't, isn't, isn't that like Ryan and Tim? In the office, like you, like you go to a temp agency, agency and, you and, you hired hired out, and you get hired out, do a thing, thing, and then after a while, while you decide you're done doing that doing thing. thing. Yeah, but it's even more chill than that. You can just kind of turn it on and off, like you're swiping on uh, Tinder, or TikTok, or however you waste your days, right? It's just the same thing. It's, like it's almost like the employee is the consumer in a way. Yes. So we'll get into that, and that's the that's the thing with the gig economy. And when we say gig economy, you and I, for the purposes of this episode, we will be referring to what was happening in the 21st century. Even so though we'll define our terms for the remainder of the discussion. It won't be like, huh, I can't believe I just said that. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a really good point. I just sounded academic. Uh, in this essay, I will. No business being academic at all. So, so we're not going to get into the history of ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia where they think there were gig people, roofs, and blah, blah, blah. So, Isn't that like the oldest profession? profession? I'm yeah, pretty sure, sure that's, that's the, the original, original gig, gig economy. economy. Not exclusive to Egypt or Mesopotamia. What is it? The oldest profession? Salesman. What are they selling? Uh, you name it. Yes, themselves. Are we allowed to say that? Uh, it's legal in one county in Nevada. Um, All right. It's true. So, okay. So, yes, the gig economy, this is what's happening. So, in California, where most of these companies are from, it's considered a platform, no different than Facebook, which is like, well, that's weird. So, the state of California has a bunch of Uber drivers that talk to each other, and they were like, I drive Uber 70 hours a week. I'm a full-time employee. Uber, make Uber give me healthcare. Make them give me benefits. And Uber's like, this is a platform. This is not a place to find work. So the Californians were like, this is a sticky wicket. Let's vote on it. And the Californians <laughs> voted. A sticky wicket. What, do they move across the Atlantic? They did not allow companies to do giggy freelance work anymore. And that had implications like into sports media. Sports Illustrated and SB Nation couldn't pay their writers if they lived in California. It's like, if you're paying them... They're an employee, and that means taxes, and that means like if they have to, if they're full time, they're full time. That's a completely different thing in other states. So, like the question of whether or not these things are platforms is completely it's fascinating. It's how the companies have kind of gotten around having to pay employees reasonable wages, which post COVID has come around to screw them, Chris, because a couple of things have conspired against the companies when it comes to Uber and the people that are losing the most money. The companies are losing the most, but we're getting screwed. Because the rides are preposterous. They're many, they are ridiculous. Many times what they used to be. I, I can't believe it. I mean, I, saw, I thought I saw an article earlier this year that said the millennial lifestyle subsidy is coming to an end. Like, all right, thanks, Boomer. Glad we're killing another industry that came about during our coming of age. Oh, my God. What am I going to do with that Uber? I'm just going to eat at the restaurant across the street instead of the one across town. What, what do you, like, nothing is going to change. It's Uber. It's, but you got to feel bad for these huge companies. Yeah, I feel really I bad. mean, nobody ever asks how the CEO is doing. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. I mean, they didn't take an Uber to space. That's, that's right. That's exactly right. So, Chris, we have something called the Traveler's Dilemma, part of the Nash Equilibrium. So this is what we're talking I mean, about. I thought the Traveler's Dilemma was just that Uber costs too much money. It, well, it does. You pull it out and you're like, it's 150 bucks. A ride that used to be 45, like to the airport, it's 150. And you're like... All of a sudden, I'm going to miss my trip now. Like, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, you got to factor that into the cost now. 
Right. And the reason they're so expensive is because there are fewer drivers. Now, why are there fewer drivers? Well, because many, many, many people are collecting unemployment benefits from the COVID era unemployment. But then because of that, right? So you have a unemployment, unemployment pays better than say McDonald's for this, for this example, we'll say McDonald's or Walmart. However, Walmart and McDonald's, they really want to make money. So they're like, they're upping their game and they are providing things like I heard this. I see this on TikTok. Walmart is doing what the military does with tuition. There's like four ride if you go in state. Uh, that's incredible. Yeah, I think, I don't know. We have to double check that. But they're giving away, they're doing college stuff. And Starbucks is doing similar things. And there are signing bonuses, thousands of dollars, eat a meal for free. They're giving stuff away because they want, they need employees. So that puts Uber, which always used to be a secondary way to make money for people, even lower than it was. And as a result of that, the drivers are like, why would I do that? I do unemployment plus McDonald's. That makes more money than Uber. So the people that are out there driving, they're going to jack up prices. And I can't say that I blame them. It's almost as if there's a relationship between the supply of a good or service available and the demand for that same good or service. Somebody should look into that. Did Nash write about that? Uh, I imagine that Nash was would discuss, like, if you have a lot of something... And people mm. want that something, then they will, and then et cetera, right? Like, I've often found that the rarer a thing is, the more valuable that it is in general. The question, I guess, for us right now, as we would think about it at the top of our heads, like, what's the limit of like, ah, I'm not going to do that. So like, I got, I just grubhubbed a pizza that I could have walked and got, but I did it because <laughs> I had some friends from out of town. They're passing through. We were hosting them and it took an hour. An hour? And I thought to myself, like, did that to myself. Did they have to cross the Winston-Salem? Did they have to cross the dash? <laughs> there is a dash. There is There is a dash. Yeah. Is there actually a dash somewhere? No, the dash is the baseball team. Do you get it? Because Winston-Salem. That's the, that's the single-A baseball team. Yeah. Oh, my God. All right. So I did that because, like, whatever. The delivery fee was, like, three bucks. I was like, fine. I'm just hanging out with my friends. It's not inconvenient. But what's, what is the number for us that's going to make it inconvenient? The airport ride in Philly is, by law, $30. So that Uber couldn't undercut cabs. That's not true anymore because of supply and demand. So it's going to 50. Okay, I'm traveling. Then at 70, you're like, ah, long-term parking is actually getting close to this. Now, if Uber all of a sudden crashes because people don't want to do it, but because of surge pricing and the algorithm, it always kind of figures out how much to pay drivers and how much uh, to charge riders. So this is where we get to the algorithms that run these systems, Chris. The way it works, I guess, and they're all different because they protect their intellectual property like they're geniuses, which they're not. They just convinced a bunch of coders to do the hard work. Which, I mean, it's helpful if you have money to help convince coders to do the hard work. Just go, just go to Stanford, essentially. Yeah. Basically. Okay. <laughs> so the way the algorithm works is you are on the app. And you're waiting around to do a ride. And it says, here's a ride that's a 10-minute drive. You'll be paid 4 bucks for this. And you're like, nah, I'm good. Here's a ride that'll take 30 minutes. It'll pay you $19. Like, yes, that's great. It's perfect. It's exactly what I want. So then it starts to match you with rides like that and then customers like that. And it's a spiral that goes around and around and around. So in around 2015, 2016, these people, ironically, who were sitting in a casino in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, that used to be a steel factory that went down because of poor management and union relationships. And that place has got to be sick. 
Oh, it's awesome. Yeah, Bethlehem Steel built it built America. It's awesome. It's a casino. That's like that's like one of those apartment complexes. It's built out of a church. That's that's just so rad. Yeah, it's legit. Also, like it's a music venue, which makes it super cool. Like they play up with. The, it's where Transformers was filmed. You know the the end of Transformers before it was renovated. That's where like the big throwdown in Shia LaBeouf Transformers was. Incredible. It was awesome. But this steel company that was on top of the world, like the, some of the stories are crazy. Like I heard a story from Bethlehem Steel in their heyday where they wanted orchids for their quarterly meeting, but the only place to get them in February in Pennsylvania was actually Hawaii. So they paid a secretary to go to Hawaii, pick them up and fly back with them. That's some gig economy stuff. Yeah, some crazy stuff, right? But they crashed. Incredible. The unions were, um, or the union that was in that particular steel mill was way too greedy. The management was too greedy, poor management. Uh, America's largely built. We're building new stuff, but it wasn't like it was in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. We weren't at war with Germany and Japan anymore. So they crashed and burned, and now this place where union and management stuff happened, these two dudes were there having a drink, and they realized, why don't we just say no to all the cheap stuff? That's a really good point. So, so these guys just realize if they keep saying no to the thing, that artificially reduces the supply of the thing. Correct. And so then what happens? Like, do those people just not get rides or what? Yes. So essentially, if you order your food... Right. You, it just takes longer and the fee is what it is. And then if, if everybody in the geographic area, say Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, if the 40 people that are delivering on that particular weekend all do that, then the baseline price goes up. So say the delivery fee is like 275. If they all say no, then it goes to 375 and that money is just cash in their pocket. It doesn't go to DoorDash because it makes it seem like oh, the, you're, this is being really hard on me. And DoorDash understands and Uber understands like we don't have drivers. We don't have a business. Yeah. we have to have them. So we'll pay them first and then we'll get ours. So the people that suffer are the business and the customer. These people that figured out, we'll just game it. But Chris, and this is what we'll get into the traveler's dilemma. It does not work. If one or two people in the area are like, I'll take it. Ah, yes. Yeah. This is what we talked about earlier. This is the, the collective action problem. Everybody benefits if everybody defers gratification but at the same time, everybody in the area has an incentive to take it because they know they're going to, A, secure money, and B, possibly secure higher money amount of money than they would have just if everybody else wasn't inflating the prices for them. Correct. So this not union of DoorDash workers, not a union, what they eventually did was create a Facebook where they're discussing this strategy of upping fees. Makes total sense to me. If you could game the system where you'll do the same amount of work for more money and no one really knows, I don't know why you wouldn't do that. I would simply make more money doing the same thing. Simply make more money. Okay, so let's talk about the traveler's dilemma and what this is. So every now and then we have to do a real game theory episode. Last time we did Pokemon cards, so now we're doing something really economical. Okay, Pokemon is a game. And it's theoretical. I will, I will not let you besmirch the name of Pokemon. We'll get to that in another episode. Yeah, the Pocket Monsters, yeah. Okay. So, if those of you that have been with us since the beginning remember Rock, Paper, Scissors and something called the Nash Equilibrium, which means that theoretically you're just guessing and it's 50-50 either way. There's no strategy involved. It's just 50-50. So, something off of the Nash Equilibrium is this thing that this guy figured out called the Traveler's Dilemma. Now, this was published in 2006. This is recent. This is recent shit. So, this is what the Traveler's Dilemma is. Say you and I are on a plane. And we have an identical antique. Let's call it a Charizard card. <laughs> Let's call it a Charizard card, Nick. We, have a, we each have a first edition Charizard. Now, you and I know how much that's worth. 
the airline, let's just call them United, doesn't know how much our now ruined Pokemon cards are worth. So, but they also figure out that, wow, we could get took for a lot of money right now. So they look at us and they say, all right, each of you write down what the Charizard card is worth. The United Airline guy, that nobody believes that United would do this. They would, of course, no reasonable person believes that I would su- suggest that they would do this, et cetera, et cetera. Don't sue me. They're not going to sue you. Yeah, they don't have enough money. <laughs> <laughs> so the United person looks at us and he says, write down, or she says, write down how much money this is worth. And I'll pay you guys. Knowing that one of them could lie. One of them could tell the truth. They could both lie. Now, you and I could look at each other and we could realize, oh, shit, what's going on? So then the United guy says, all right, I'll solve it. In his brain, he's like, the lower bid is probably the truthful one. And the higher number is probably a dude trying to get more money than the card is actually worth. At that point, he tells them, this is what's going to happen. The person with the lowest number is what I'm going to pay. That sets off a situation between me and you where theoretically it's better to lowball. So then he kicks in the kicker. So again, me and you, our Pokemon cards are damaged. Lowest number on the thing gets money. But the person who writes the lowest also gets a $2 benefit. So let's say the number is between $100 and $2. If you say 98 and I say 100, he's going to penalize me $2 and reward you $2. So you would get 100 and I would get 98. Because you can't not pay me. So at that point, then my incentive is once I realize the math, I'm like, well, then I should do 97. And then you're like, well, if he's 97, 96, and at a certain point, we're just going to spiral to the only logical answer is $2. We should. That's pretty crafty. $2. However, in experimentation, they found out that people just guess and one person will write down like 91 and the other one will write down like 65. I wonder if that is just because this is all too complicated to think through on the fly. And I think people are naturally driven by curiosity. Like that stuff with the changing variables in the door problem with the car and the goats, like from that movie 21. I think people just don't want to think through that. And they would rather just let chaos reign and switch up. They're like, oh, yeah, you got to switch it up. I mean, it'd be like, what's the reason? Like, what we, You got to switch it up. I, and I, I, and I, I completely agree with that, too, honestly, to a certain point. Because I'm like... I don't care about this. Like more money is better than none. Like, I don't know why what's weird is that human nature just doesn't automatically like woo. The $2 penalty to me is not enough incentive to not put more down. We should put a hundred down. Agreed. Why just would we not do that? Put the maximum amount. Yeah. Cause like what? Cause and the, the argument of this, this theorem is, and it works in dollars of in amounts of $1, $2, $3 in theory. Like what if it was a hundred thousand and the difference was 20,000, right? Like that's a lot. But the theory is that the $2 finder's fee incentive for the person that lowballs would be enough to change that incentive. I say, no, it's exact. This is literally friend or foe, right? Like, is it better for me and you to cooperate? But we don't know what cooperation is and we're incentivized to kind of be the good person about it. And that is the traveler's dilemma. So is, is the finder's fee like the theoretical minimum that you should bet? So if there, if there was like a $50 finder's fee, then you shouldn't wager anything lower than $50, Okay, so you want to have a really small finder's fee. So why doesn't he have like a one cent finder's fee? And he's like, all right, these guys are going to value their first edition Charizards at one cent. I'll tell you, because then for the, for, to prove the theorem, he started out with like 99. Well, then a $2 finder's fee would mean that you would 
it would prove the point that you would have a recognizable sum larger than the original oh. amount that he was willing to give anyway. Yeah, are there experimental results to back this up? Because like, I, th- I think I follow you with the theory. Yeah. People are incentivized to drive the price down to a certain point when the kicker is enough. Yes. But you said that's not what people do. So, all right. I don't know exactly if there's research on the traveler's dilemma exactly, but they did mention in this article that I read from Investopedia, which is a great website about finances and investing. Uh, highly recommend. It's like an encyclopedia for investing. Do you get it? So do they choose the Nash equilibrium? This is, you know, it's, it's the prisoner's wow. dilemma. It's the public good game. So there are prisoner's dilemma and public's, public goods games research that suggests that they don't. Oh. They appear to have just a positive attitude in favor of cooperation. <laughs> so, so wait, is, is this a behavioral economics thing or is this just like talking about people's personalities? It's like, what if you get like a mean jerk who hates everybody? You say that because something happened over the weekend in the Olympics that talks about this exact DoorDash Nash equilibrium thing. Did you see it? Would you, you subscribe to my podcast? Interesting to see it. Did a sports podcast about news narratives. No, I was too caught up with the Matthew Stafford bit. Hilarious. Thank you. Here's the thing that happened in the Olympics, right? So there was a man from, I believe, Italy and Qatar. They're in the high jump, and this is what happened. They, I did listen to this. Yes. So they had a jump off. They both got to a certain point. They raised the bar, another thing, and then they both couldn't get it. So they reached Amazing. the theoretical limit. So that means the judge was like, we're kind of in a place where you guys got to keep going until someone gets it. And they're like, we are the best in the world at this. This is the limit. We can't do it. So then I guess... I didn't look too far into it because I was living my life, but I think that they could lower the bar because they're going to get tired or they could just wake up the next day and just keep trying to push each other. So they looked at each other and under a subset of a subset of a subset of a subset of a rule, literally it was like point, 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 point. If they both agree to share the gold medal, then they are both gold medalists, which is (laughs) flabbergasting. (laughs) So this is like, this is like in dodgeball at the end when everyone thinks global gym won. And what's his name with the rule book comes out. And he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. And he's like, in the event of a tie, the council can have a two thirds vote. And like Chuck Norris saves the day. It's like, was Chuck Norris out there at the high jump? And he's like, good job, guys. What was really interesting is the video is kind of emotional. Like they hugged each other as if they were teammates. And I know that at high level athletics, you travel all around the world and you, they probably know each other a little. Well, it's got to be a weird, a different dynamic too with individual sports. Like, like, okay, wrestling, you're trying to like pin someone like you're in a fight. Football, you're trying to stop other people from getting a ball into an area. But like with track and field events, swimming, that kind of stuff, like nobody's trying to stop you from doing what you're doing. They're just trying to do it better than you. So I I wonder if that environment just naturally breeds more camaraderie among the athletes. I, I kind of, I thought about that as well, because in, in my mind, I was trying to justify, like I have these conversations when I prepare for my daily sports podcast about like, what would I do? Do I have a take on this? Does it matter? Does anyone care? So I thought about it for maybe seven minutes, like enough to kind of, there was a podcast on the background. I was drinking my coffee. I was getting the cobwebs out. You know what I mean? That's a theoretical minimum amount of time that you could spend thinking. Literally about like enough to care, but not enough to like write it down. <laughs> if only you had the technology for doing so. Well, I wouldn't tweet it at that, like that kind of level of thinking, right? So <laughs> follow me on Twitter. Don't though. I'm a terrible follow. Please don't. Where this bar was at to me is like, it's, it's, I liken it to a mountain. Like the mountain is this high. But they both climbed it. So they're both cold medalists, which means to, this is a classic game theory situation where they're in a position where they have to agree to win the gold medal. And they're, what we found is that they're not competing against one another. They're pitted against one another, but they're competing against what's possible and who else is alive. 
That's it. So if, if, the, if the person who could jump the highest of all time was alive and they were going against them, then they would win the silver medal, which is why the, the Olympics to me, the way that the English language and other language, well, at least in America, the way the English language is used with it is really important because you don't come in second. You win the silver medal. And those are two different things for me. So in team sports, we're like yeah, I agree. finishing in second place. Fine. In a team sport, like you lost a championship, sure. If you are second in a swimming race, you won the silver medal, which means that you did the best you could, and that was good for the silver medal. Is a different thing than being in second place. Like we don't wrap our minds around that. In this instance, they both cl- they they climbed Mount Everest together. They are gold medalists. Yeah, the the sense of competition in the middle of a swim heat is different than when teams are like facing off against one another. Because yeah, you because you could just have like theoretical all times. You're like, okay, everybody who gets within this time frame, you win a silver medal. Or everybody who gets within this height range, you get a gold medal. Right. But, I, I mean, I get things change from year to year. Like, not every swimming pool is the same. Not every running environment's the same. You know, you got to have the element of, like, preparation. Does the athlete have the right competitive mindset? Like, okay, I get that. But in, in sports that teams are facing off against each other, I think it makes a little bit more sense to me to say that you came in second because, like, you lost the game. Yes, agreed. Well, and yeah, you lost. In swimming or track or whatever, you didn't lose. You were just second place, which is winning silver. Which is yeah, yeah. It's it's a different it's a different kind of winning. Which, but all of this is telling me that, frankly, we have championship addiction. Like, we're obsessed with like who's the best, who's the best, and like it. It's not that it's bad to figure out who's the best of sports or games or whatever, but. Sometimes you just want to see people do things that are impressive. Right. So if you watch, and this, is, this has happened in gymnastics, in the, and this, there are ties in the Olympics more than people realize because sometimes a thousandth of a second is not enough. Like, they tied. Yeah. That happens. There are enough humans that that can happen, and if there are ties in gymnastics, there's just a tie. They handed each other, like, flowers and stuff. Like, it's, a, it's an individual path. So when you go there and you compete around other individuals that understand what's going on, you share that moment with them. So to be put in that game theory situation of, like, I want to be the gold medalist or I want to be handed a gold medal and like it's presented in front of you. You have to do this thing that we just watched you fail to do three times and him fail to do three times and neither of you are going to get it. Like we're watching you. You're getting further away. You're getting tired. This is it. They reached the theoretical limit. So essentially they got to the point where they got their hundred dollars and they both said, I'll take a hundred bucks. That's pretty slick actually. Right. So, like, bring this back around to DoorDash. The only way that works is if you have people that are on the same page. So this person, these two guys were from Qatar and Italy. No beef. We know that the Olympics famously is a place where beef can happen. Holla at your boy Belarus. There can be political... Wait, 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 wait. What, what happened with Belarus? Because I thought that was a government thing. Oh, so the Belarusian athlete, I forget what she does. She talks shit on the coaches, and then they were like, hey, come here right now. So they drove her to the airport, and they were going to send her home to Belarus to be talked to be oh god eaten and maybe murdered yes so then she's like makes you really grateful to live in this country doesn't it yes i she's like i ain't going and poland's like you can live here and they're like we're gonna live here and then belarus is freaking out about it yeah so just see this just tells me i was right to not choose to be an elite world-class athlete because then i could be put in situations like that yeah exactly like it's uh you had the opportunity to say i'll pass yeah and you travel so much you're away from your family you said you were talking about earlier about personalities it only works if you have the personality to be like, take a minute and breathe or whatever. And it's not a competition where I'm besting you with my body. It's where I'm in your lane or you're in my, you're in your lane. I'm in my line, whatever. Like we're doing it. We're each taking our turn to jump. It's the same is true with DoorDash. The personalities have to mesh to do this. So what these guys in Bethlehem realize is like, 
It only works if everybody agrees. And then nationally, they could up the baseline if more people agree to do that. So there's a Facebook group where a bunch of drivers, they invited a bunch of other delivery people to this Facebook group, not a union. Again, can't reiterate that enough. It's not a union. But they bully the shit out of people that don't do this. It, like cyberbullying? So people get kicked out if they're not on board. I would simply log off the internet. Yes. Well, that's what they do. So this one guy, he's a YouTuber, and he makes videos about what it's like to be a DoorDash driver, and they're all adorable, stupid videos. Kid was like 19 when he did it. Then he made a serious video about it. He said, this is my route. That's a five-minute delivery. I'm going to take it. I'm taking it. I'm going to do whatever I want. And that's where this comes in, in, into play because it's not about collaboration. So think about the, the, the traveler's dilemma like this for me and you, and think in terms of DoorDash. This dilemma is only relevant if it's pitting us against each other. In a vacuum, if this person is telling us to do that individually, I am, I, my hypothesis is that 100% of the time you would put down the max amount of money. Yeah, that's a good point. Why would you, I, I don't give a fuck about you. I want my money. And so if you're the DoorDash driver, it's like, I don't work for the good of the people or the good of the company. I am here to drive a car and give people food for money. And I want my money right now. And if that will give me five bucks, then I have to make that decision in my brain. But these, this group of, of dudes and, and women, and like they're aggressive about it or whatever, they, are, they want to make more money for the unit. And they want to kind of conquer the system. They're playing the game. All you have to do to not participate is remove yourself from the game. And that shoots all this in the butt. That nips all this in the bud. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a good point. I mean, like that, this also kind of gets into why people think it's good to have transparency about your salary because this privacy that surrounds how much money people make, well, when you're in the dark, when you don't have information about what other people are able to pull in with their negotiating or with promotions or whatever, that only benefits the company. That only keeps money in the coffer of the larger organization. It doesn't help any individual employees. And there's a reason that it's illegal for employers to prohibit their employees from discussing salary. Uh, and that's because it's in their best interest for employees not to do so. Same case here. It's in the best interest of gig economy companies like DoorDash and Uber and whomever else to not have their drivers coordinated so that it's an individual stovepipe thing where everybody's competing one-on-one-on-one-on-one-on-one-on-one -on -one -on -one -on -one -on -one -on -one -on -one forever. And that way, competition theoretically benefits both the company and the consumer because that drives prices down. Everybody's incentivized to lowball. But when you can coordinate... And when you can get more information, more communication, more commitment to the cause, then that actually turns the tables, benefits the people who are doing the work, hurts the consumer, hurts the company, but drivers make more money in the end. Well, they do and they don't. So this is what I find interesting. And this is now we're kind of going off into a tangent where I'm just kind of guessing what's going to happen. So that's right. It's like this, is, this essentially concludes our conversation about the gig economy and what we know about the way that this is working and why prices are so high and the DoorDash, again, non-union on Facebook. But the, the ability to, dec to decline a job when you're on the platform is there for a reason, and that reason is not to game the system. That reason is because you don't feel comfortable going into that neighborhood. That's too far away. You don't want to drive that traffic. Maybe you're scared of the interstate. Like if you want just a couple bike routes in downtown Manhattan, like in the financial district, then that's the purpose of this. Like I live here. There are people here that want food from this restaurant and they want to take in there and I'll do it. It's like if you start turning those down at a certain point, the artificial intelligence, which is just what 
it's an algorithm. Algorithms are artificial intelligence, essentially. Artificial intelligence is just a series of if-then statements. Yeah, exactly. I'm convinced. Just, yeah. So, but the algorithm is going to figure this out. So if DoorDash and Uber eventually are like, you've accepted 3,000 deliveries like this, and you've turned down three in a row now, what's going on? Curiouser and curiouser. Right. Of course, AIs know humans never change. They never have impulses. <laughs> Utterly predictable. We're nothing more than a series of complexes that are meant to be unentangled and understood by machines. All you're going to do is trigger the company to be like, so you said no, and then you said yes, and now it's more money, huh? And the idea that the companies, these platforms are not going to be able to track that. They're tracking this conversation right now, probably. Are they? They better not be tracking it right now. They can track it when we publish it. If they're tracking it right now, we got some bigger problems here. Yeah, I mean, they could. I mean, they could track it. Oh, God. Yeah, they is could. the Soviet Union? Uh, yeah, I don't know about that. Yeah, I don't know about that. Belarus, yeah. They're in the Soviet Union, right? That sounds like Soviet Union. Not anymore. Kind of place. Yeah, yeah that's semantics. <laughs> semantics. It, yeah, the Soviet Union's been gone for 30 years. Yeah, it, it has. So Chris, I think, I remember very distinctly one time you and I were not capable of driving and we wanted a pizza and the pizza was en route and the guy was like i'm going into that neighborhood which is very discriminatory of your neighborhood which is up and coming that's true that's true it's a nice neighborhood school right across the street lovely folks all around that's the purpose of declining is to say like yeah i don't feel comfortable get sad and it's nighttime like all right you know that's annoying but fine i also have to we're going to finish this episode with the, with the dopest story i've ever ever this, i hate the word swaggy this is the swaggiest thing I've ever seen in my life. Number one, we're at a wedding, and this guy, he wanted to have cigars at the wedding. Of course he did. Right, but it was like 1 a.m., so that kind of that's where our thinking was. So he looks at Uber Eats, and he's like, the cigar store is in this strip mall. It's right next to a McDonald's. So he orders $50 worth of McDonald's. 50 bucks worth of McDonald's. My God. Then he calls the guy, and he says... The McDonald's is, bring the McDonald's. You can have any of the McDonald's that you want. I don't care about the McDonald's. I need you to go next door, and I need you to buy these cigars. And so he gives, he texts the driver a list of the cigars he wants, and then he Venmo's him $200. And we get, like, 50 McNuggets and about nine cigars. Not 49. Not 51. 50. 50. 50. Damn. Cool.